The Bible reading is from Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment, their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice, loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discern their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome again to Christ Church. Pastor Keith will be uh, with us again uh, next week when he'll begin a four-part series in the book of Acts that will lead up to our 20th anniversary celebration, our 20th year of being a particular church. But we are in Psalm 73 this morning. And so if you'd keep your bulletins open to that uh, passage, that would be very helpful. Friends, Psalm 73 is a psalm attributed to Asaph, one of David's choir masters. And it's really a confession 
one that God's people have turned to again and again because its words seem to fit us so well and because it has the power to give us new strength, strength to stay the course in a life of discipleship, a life of loyalty to our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think most of us can identify with the psalmist because we too know about the struggle for faith in a world in which, which usually holds the presence and reality of God in contempt. Well, in its details, Psalm 73 is about a great struggle of faith in the life of one of God's servants. It's a conflict that we often live through as well. It's the conflict between faith and experience, between our creed and the lives we actually live, between what our tradition tells us is the case and what we observe of life on the other hand. Perhaps unique in biblical literature, the Psalms address the things that we think and feel. They put into words what we often cannot, and they lead us to an acknowledgement of how life really is. And they do it in a very striking way, very often through the use of the first person singular. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Okay, when we pray the Psalms, particularly when we pray them aloud, we enter into the thoughts and emotions of the psalmist, and we actively commit ourselves to following the God-approved life. When we pray the Psalms, we take their words on our lips and say them to God in a very personal and solemn way. Consider Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Or Psalm 25. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Or in our own text, verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We take these words on our lips and pray them in a very personal way. Friends, the Psalms do not allow us to deny and cover up our troubles, our challenges, the real lives we live, the real experiences we pass through. Psalm 73 and others like it insist that our world and our lives must be experienced as they really are and not in some pretended way. And to that extent, the Psalms are a gift to us, a resource for conversation with our Heavenly Father about the things that matter most, about the things that trouble us, about the things that we don't think it wise, perhaps, to share with others. And the Psalms have been used that way for generations, by Old Testament believers, by Jesus and his disciples, and by the early church. The Apostle Paul told the Ephesians, and of course by extension to us as well, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in Psalms. And he said much the same to the Colossians and the Corinthians. So we have good grounds for reading through Psalm 73 today and thinking through it in some depth now. Let's begin right at verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. You can see it begins with the adverb truly, which is kind of a crucial word uh, in the psalm. It appears three times at crucial points. Here in verse 1, again in verse 13, where it's there but not translated as such, and in verse 18. And the force of the word here in verse 1, truly, is sort of, you know, in spite of everything to the contrary, God is good to Israel, 
to those who are pure in heart. Now, verse 1 is not the introduction to the psalm. It's really the conclusion. It's as if the psalmist is saying to us, come along with me. I have a story to tell you about an experience I lived through, I passed through, and I'd like to show you how I learned to affirm this, that God is good in a world of hurt and envy and inequity. Friends, Psalm 73 is an assault upon a naive faith, and the call for us, as always, is to go deeper in a kind of Hebrew 6 fashion, leaving the elementary teachings and moving on to maturity. Now, when the psalmist affirms that God is good to his people, to Israel, to the covenant community, to those pure in heart, he's not saying that God is good to those who are morally perfect. That would certainly be a depressing thought. The pure in heart are not perfect, but they are those who live in loyalty to God in speech and in action. Their lives are characterized by fidelity to Yahweh. Now, one of the marks of fidelity, which we see in this very psalm, is the confession of sin. We sin, we own it, we confess it, we forsake it, and by God's grace and pardon in Christ, we pick ourselves up and continue to walk with God. So the pure in heart are not morally perfect, but they do live in fidelity to Yahweh. Now, the psalmist's story, his personal account of difficulty, actually opens in verse 2 with those words, but as for me, but as for me, which suggests that he had a problem with verse 1, that the confession that God is good to Israel, to the pure in heart, was problematic for him at one time. And in verses 2 to 14, the psalmist is looking back over a sad and troubling experience in his own life. Perhaps you've been there too. Perhaps you're experiencing something similar now. He tells us that he was very badly shaken, that he very nearly fell. He very nearly abandoned God's way and God's people. But why? What happened? Well, the problem was that he didn't quite understand God's way with him. You see, for a godly person, for one loyal to Yahweh, life can often be very difficult. It only takes a moment's reflection, I think, to realize that we don't live in a world in which godliness is rewarded. The way of the cross is at odds with the way of the world. The way of discipleship is a contrary way. And in this life, godly people suffer in ways the wicked do not. And sometimes, because of this, godly people, godly people are provoked to anger and to jealousy. Now, we all experience emotions like that from time to time negative emotions, and the psalmist is no exception. He admits, he confesses in verse 3, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he expands on this in verses 21 and 22, where he says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. The psalmist is in a bad way. And he's completely transparent about this. He was embittered. He was grieved. He was deeply affected by envy when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, the use of the word wicked here, it's a label, really. It's a social identification. In other words, it's not a term used by the psalmist to condemn a group of people. 
It simply marks out a group that in the psalmist's tradition tells him should suffer, yet they don't. Envy. One commentator has said that the power of the wicked is largely their ability to evoke jealous coveting in the heart of the righteous. The power of the wicked is largely their ability to evoke jealous coveting in the hearts of the righteous. You see, oftentimes the greatest strength of the wicked is their power to stir up envy and discontent in the hearts of God's people. And this is as true in our day as it was in the psalmists. I'll give you a somewhat silly example. Over 20 years ago now, when my wife and I and our children moved to New Jersey, we moved from New York to New Jersey, it was, uh, it was a, buy, a seller's market. And there were a lot of bids on the house we were interested in, but we, we got the bid, we got it, we got the house, we're, we're grateful. We're happy to be in this house. It's a nice house. Uh, but in, in a few weeks after we moved in, uh, friends of ours moved to a house on the same block. So it was great. And my neighbor and I, we, we kind of did similar work in, in uh, close uh, together in the city, and we would drive in together. And the quickest way for us to get to the highway was to drive through the back roads of the neighboring town. And the neighboring town begins about 100 yards from our front door. But from my house to the neighboring town, once you're in that neighboring town, you're in a different world. That neighboring town is old money New Jersey. Big, big stately homes, beautifully manicured lawns. And we would drive through this area Monday through Friday, every day. And after a while, our own homes, which we were happy to have, looked kind of small and mean-looking by comparison. That's, that's the stirring up of envy and discontent. It happens. Well, what is it that the psalmist envied about the wicked? What is it that he envied about the wicked? The short answer is just about everything. Observing the wicked closely, it seemed that everything was going well with them. They experienced prosperity in every way. Physically, look at verse 4, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They experience prosperity economically as well. Look down at verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. So they experience prosperity physically, economically. They're also powerful. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. And because of all this, because of what the psalmist observes in verses 4 to 12, he's made aware of a very painful fact. Here he was, living a godly life, obedient to Yahweh, loyal to Yahweh. In verse 13, he tells us that he kept his heart clean. He washed his hands in innocence. Now, we said a few moments ago that the adverb truly appears at three places in this psalm. Verse 1 then here in verse 13, though it's not translated as such here, but the force of the adverb here, which is really translated all in vain, the force of the adverb is, in spite of all the indications of well-being of the wicked, I've kept my heart clean, washed my hands in innocence. The psalmist has refused to run after the prosperous wicked and adopt their ways. But life was hard. He was practicing the godly life. He was devoted to God. And yet, he, as he says in verse 14, he was having a great deal of trouble. Stricken, plagued all day, rebuked, punished every morning. Now, the psalmist doesn't tell us exactly what the trouble was. 
Perhaps there was illness in his family, some kind of conflict, economic pressure, something that seems likely actually from verses 6 and 8 and 12, economic pressure. But whatever the trouble was, it was very painful to him. Everything seemed to be going wrong. Nothing seemed to be going right. And we've all had days like that, right? And they're tough. Those are hard days when everything seems to go wrong, nothing seems to go right. That's bad enough in itself. But that's not what really bothered him. The real trouble was that when he looked around at the wicked, at the ungodly, he saw a striking contrast. And in verses 4 to 12, the psalmist gives us a summary of the power and the freedom of the wicked. Now, some of this may be hyperbole. It may be hyperbole, but that's how he sees it. Here's how he sees it. The wicked seem to be carefree and unconcerned about tomorrow. They're doing well. Their wealth and power increase. They seem to enjoy greater freedom than we do. They don't appear to suffer in their bodies. They're free of frailty and disease. These are people who seem to live above the frustrations of life. And not surprisingly, the wicked also pay no heed to God and to his commandments, something that is apparent from verses 9 and 11. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens. In verse 11, they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? The wicked pay no heed to God and his commandments. They're full of pride, these people. Whatever they have is due to scheming and a lawless way of life. They walk over others to succeed. Now, verses 4 to 12 aren't merely descriptive of the wicked. The problem for the psalmist is that it seems that wickedness pays. Wickedness works. And God lets them get away with it. You see the conflict here. The psalmist, you know, believed what we believe about God. That he's holy, he's righteous, he's true to his word. The psalmist must have known Deuteronomy 28, that catalog of blessings for obedience. And it's likely he knew Psalm 1 as well. And both these texts, Deuteronomy 28 and Psalm 1, suggest that prosperity is a result of obedience. In fact, Psalm 1 says of the righteous, in all that he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so. But it seems we've got the reverse of that here in Psalm 73. It's the wicked who prosper, not the righteous. The psalmist has a problem. And his problem, the problem he has, and the problem we have is often this. It's how to reconcile these beliefs with our experience of the world. Our own situation, our own observations of the wicked. In a nutshell, the problem is that the psalmist's experience didn't mesh with his tradition. The righteous are supposed to prosper, not the wicked, but it's the other way around here. And so he, the psalmist is perplexed, he is troubled, he is confused, and he's now having doubts, serious doubts, about the value of his concern with holy living. Look at verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. In vain have I walked with God and been obedient. Is Israel's tradition of moral responsibility nonsense? Is it useless to keep a clean heart? 
You ever asked yourselves that question? Is it useless to keep a clean heart? It's a question that has cropped up more than once in Scripture. In the prophecy of Malachi in chapter 3, Malachi, remember, is a kind of a dialogue between God and the people. In Malachi chapter 3, beginning at verse 13, this is what we read. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Same problem, same issue. Now perhaps this question, whether it's useless to keep a clean heart, is asked in every generation by young and old alike. The good news is that God is not surprised by the question. He's not troubled by the question. He's not afraid of the question. He knows our struggles. He knows what we observe of life. But he can guide us through it as we pray through our emotions, as the psalmist does here, as the psalmist shows the way. But be warned. What's happened to the psalmist can happen to us as well. We can become utterly enamored of the wicked, of those we all know to be ungodly. We can dwell so much on the contrast between ourselves and the wicked, between ourselves and non-Christians, that we can be tempted, almost seduced, to the way of the world, a way not judged by loyalty to Yahweh, but a way judged by pragmatism. And this can happen in many areas of life. The psalmist recognizes that the way of the wicked seems to work. It certainly seems to work better than the way of Israel, the way of Yahweh. And how can that way be so bad when it produces such happy results? This is what's going on in his mind. This is what he's thinking about. But all this, the psalmist insists, is what he might have said. Look at verse 15. If I had said I will speak thus... I would have betrayed the generation of your children. This is all in his mind. In other words, the psalmist has kept quiet about his envy of the wicked. He kept quiet about the internal conflict he was having. All that we've looked at thus far, the psalmist hasn't breathed a word of it to anyone. In all likelihood, the only one he's uttered these words to is God. The psalmist is speaking to God, praying through his thoughts and his emotions. And friends, what the psalmist is doing here is what we find throughout the book of Psalms in its entirety. And we've touched on this before. Whether it's joy or sorrow, guilt or a heart full of praise, whatever it is, the psalmist puts words to his feelings and he takes those words to God. He does that every time. And that's what Asaph, that's what our psalmist is doing here. In other words, what you feel must be articulated. It must be brought to speech. And whatever is brought to speech must be addressed to God. The psalmist does that every time. And friends, that's how you complain like a Christian. You put words to your thoughts and you take those words to God. That's what you do. But we do have to ask the question, why didn't the psalmist speak out? Why didn't he speak to others? 
What held him back? Look again at verse 15. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. The point the psalmist got hung up on was this. What will the children think? Is this how I want to be remembered by them? The children here has, does have the sense of children of the younger generation or more broadly the people of God. If I embrace the way of the wicked, if I follow that way, if I abandon the life of discipleship, abandon God's people, I'm going to violate the trust the younger generation has placed in me. Friends, would that more Christian adults paused to consider those questions. This portion of Psalm 73 is a challenge and a warning for us. It's a challenge and a warning. Why do I say that? Well, because of the social dimension of our faith. The social dimension of our faith. You see, this sober moment when the psalmist is kind of beginning to come to himself, to turn a corner, did not come to some isolated person, to a loner, an individualist. No, this moment of sobriety, of clear thinking, came to a member of a community who understood that he had to act responsibly toward that community. This text underscores for us the importance of the Christian community, of genuine Christian fellowship, of relationships in the body of Christ. And fellowship, you know, is not an option in the church. It's one of the marks of a true church. We know that from Acts and elsewhere. We need fellowship for all sorts of reasons. We need each other. You see here, community life, community pressure, was actually critical in keeping the psalmist from going the way of the wicked. As attractive as that way is to the psalmist, he just can't live that way. Here's a little known fact. The absence of Christian community is one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why a young person who's grown up in a Christian home often drifts away when he or she goes off to college. The absence of Christian community. Well, here what we see is that a little community pressure and the psalmist is ripe for a change in attitude. Now, he's not there yet. His community is hemming him in. Maybe he doesn't like it. Maybe he's chafing under it, like we all do at times. But he's ripe for a change in attitude. So what does he do? What does he do next? Is he stuck? Not at all. He keeps moving. What he does now is apply some intellectual effort to the problem he faces. Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. When I thought how to understand it, it seemed a wearisome task. He's trying to understand his experience. He's trying to make sense of it, to find a way forward. And friends, there is a place for reflection, for study, for the quest for knowledge, the effort to understand our predicament, to make sense of it. There is a place for that. And so we turn to our Bibles. We pray. We turn to our Bibles. We read more carefully. Perhaps we pick up a book. I brought a book with me. Here's a book by New Testament scholar D.A. Carson. How Long, O Lord? Reflections on Suffering and Evil. It's a great book. I've passed it around to various people. He treats various biblical passages, passages that touch on the issue we're talking about. 
He touches them with wisdom and compassion, and yes, with serious biblical analysis. It's a helpful book. There is a place for serious engagement with the faith. But ultimately, ultimately, the change we need, the new perspective that will alter our lives and free us from envy of the wicked, will not come about just by thinking hard or meditating on a problem. Again, verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. You're not going to get there by intellectual effort alone. There is a place for it, but it's not the final place. You're not going to get there by intellectual effort alone. Asaph, the psalmist, is attracted by the way of the wicked. He's envious of their lives, and he's discouraged in his own life until, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Until. This is the decisive moment, the turning point, the total change in perspective that will eliminate the psalmist's turmoil. See, in the sanctuary, in the temple, the holy place, in the presence of the Lord at worship, a privilege we all have, in some unknown and mysterious way, we are confronted with the all-satisfying glories of God in such a way that the power of all competing pleasures and ideologies is broken and God himself holds us captive. Friends, at worship, in the Lord's presence, we are freed from our obsession with the wicked. And with our eyes fixed on God, we're able to take the long view. We're able to see clearly, not looking at the wicked today or tomorrow, but way down the line. And we discern their destiny, a destiny spelled out in verses 18 to 20. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. The psalmist finally understands that Psalm 1 is true. The righteous do prosper and the wicked don't. The way of the wicked doesn't work. In fact, these self-indulgent, autonomous people have an end coming, which is harsh, and unavoidable and frightening. They will be judged. They will be swept away. Look at verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Friends, those who live in opposition to the claims of God will not endure. This is also God's response in Malachi, the passage we read earlier. Again in Malachi chapter 3, picking up right where we left off. Listen to this. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. You see, the coming of God's righteous judgment brings all things into perspective. 
The psalmist finally recognizes here that his infatuation with the wicked, with the lifestyles of the rich and famous, threatened the only relationship he really valued. The end of the wicked is ruin. The contrasting end of God's people is glory, nearness to God. Friends, our destiny is well-being from God and with God. We have a future and a hope that the wicked simply do not share. And in verses 23 to 28, the psalmist's earlier experience of pain and discouragement and envy is transformed to the joy of God's presence. Look at verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It's this statement of intense faith that actually leads to the conclusion that is verse 1. Truly God is, is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. God himself is now the chief desire of the psalmist. Friends, whatever difficulties you're living through now, whatever challenges you may face in the year ahead, learn from the psalmist. Put words to your troubles and take those words to God. Pray through your emotions and stay with the church. Be part of the Christian community. Worship the Lord. And when times get hard and you feel overwhelmed, Remember that the most frequent emotion of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels is that of compassion. He is the Lord we love and the Savior we need. Amen. Our Father, we pray that you would continue to speak to us from your word. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to meditate upon your word more and more. We pray that you would be with us, that you would comfort us and sustain us now and in the year ahead. For Jesus' sake and in his name, amen.